0: A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his whole household and he could no he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them.
1: I'm uh, not making any theological or spiritual comment about that, but could you all stand just for a moment, please? i uh, like to begin this sermon with a prayer. So let's just bow our heads in prayer. Um, Father, uh, you know the true state of our hearts. You know the different ways that we can be anxious about being Christians or embarrassed about being Christians. Uh, you know these the times within the last couple of days or months where we might have had a chance to just identify as a Christian, but we turned away from that chance. And Father, you know these things truly, even if we do not always remember them truly. Uh, we thank you, Father, that uh, we get to gather in your church in your city, in your word, your world, to hear your gospel for your glory. And we ask that you would gently but deeply pour the Holy Spirit upon us at this time so that your word and the gospel might be more deeply real to our hearts and that we might live free and whole to bring you glory in this city, in Gatineau and to the ends of the earth. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. If uh, they were to write a new edition of uh, the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, there would not be a section that says you should become a Christian. In fact, uh, one of the things that we know uh, is that uh, becoming a Christian nowadays does not make you more popular. It does not help you advance in your job. For many people in our culture, Christianity is toxic. It's actually the problem. Um, One of the things that you could see in the Roe versus Wade um, decision that happened in the States was people quite publicly and on major media platforms saying very loudly that we're now stuck with this imposition of Christian morality upon our country that's going to kill women and hurt many. So for many parts of our culture, Christianity is viewed as toxic. It's one of the reasons why, I don't know if you're here as, as a seeker, if you are here as a seeker, I, I'm on behalf of the church, I really welcome you. It's a very big journey. Uh, if you're not a Christian, to come to a place like this. And uh, if you're watching online, I welcome you as well. It's a very big journey. Because we intuitively understand that to become a Christian is not popular. In fact, it's the opposite of being popular. It's actually one of the reasons why many times Christians struggle with being Christians. It contributes to some of us leaving the faith because we don't like the social pressure that comes to bear by being identified as a Christian. And it also explains why it's not unusual for people to want to change the Christian faith, to try to make it more socially acceptable because there's something very deeply human about wanting to have friends to be liked to be popular the bible text which was just read which we're going to look at right now walks directly into this problem and into this issue directly into the problem of being unpopular and being rejected so it would be a great help to me whether you look on your your bulletin or if like me you have uh, the This is called a Bible, it's a a book, (laughs) for those of us who remember what Bibles and books are like. It would be a very great help if you turn to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. And we're going to look at this story and we're going to walk towards these particular types of questions. So just as you're sort of looking there, just a little tiny bit of a context. If you're watching online, I don't know what's been said here in previous weeks. But, uh, you know, it looks so funny. Here I am reading it in a book, and it has, like, it's all a bit worn, but it's fancy paper, and it looks like it's a... The thing to understand when we're looking at Mark chapter 6 and when we're looking at Mark in general is that we're looking at one of the four ancient eyewitness biographies of Jesus. We're looking at one of the four eyewitness biographies of Jesus. Um, And uh, Mark himself would have been a direct eyewitness of some of the events that he records, but he knew eyewitnesses and he wrote this eyewitness biography when there were literally thousands of eyewitnesses still alive who could have told him that he got it wrong or he got it right. Just the other day, I was talking to somebody who, of course, like many people in our culture, think that you can't actually trust that even if this is supposed to be an eyewitness biography, that it's actually accurate, that it's been changed so many times throughout the years, that uh, you can no longer trust it. And I just said to him, do you, do you think you can actually trust if you read, you know, uh, you read Plato or Aristotle or any of the ancient writers? Do you think that fundamentally they got it right? And after a bit of hemming and hawing, he said, yes. He said, well, I said to him, you know, the very same monks that translated, that, that, that kept copies, made copies of Plato and Aristotle are the same monks that copied the gospels. So you can't get rid of the Gospels without actually getting rid of everything. Exact same monks. So why why would you disbelieve the monks when it comes to copying Mark, but not disbelieve them when they copy Plato or Aristotle or any of the other ancient writers? All the exact same monks were doing the copy. So what we're looking at here is an ancient biography of Jesus. And uh, what's just happened in this story, because Mark, this biography tells a story, and what's just happened is uh, two stories ago, uh, Jesus and the disciples were on the pagan side of, uh, of the Promised Land, and uh, there Jesus had an encounter with a man who was possessed by demons, and he cast the demons, uh, it was a legion of demons, out of the man, and the reaction of the, of the, of the crowd uh, was that they wanted Jesus to leave. So Jesus left and came back to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, when he came to the Jewish side of the the Sea of Galilee, the story just before this is, uh, there's a crowd, uh, a man who's a ruler in the synagogue, wants Jesus to come and heal his daughter, who's on the point of death. Jesus agrees to go. He gets waylaid by a woman who's been impoverished uh, with a very shameful and debilitating um, and socially isolating Uh, condition for a dozen years and he heals her and then he goes ahead that the young girl has died but he goes ahead and he raises her from the dead and that's what's immediately happened before this and here our story continues and it goes like this he that is Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown that would be Nazareth and his disciples followed him and on the Sabbath Jesus began to teach in the synagogue And many who heard him were astonished, saying, (laughs) Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph and Judas, and Simon, and and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, just pause, we're going to go back and look at this just a bit in a moment. So, sometimes uh, there's many people here who speak more than one language, and you know that when you speak more than one language, sometimes it's very hard to capture uh, what's what something said in one language into the other language. And there's just really no way to, to actually do it easily without adding extra comments. And, and one of the things here that you need to see is when it says look at verse 2 again, and on the sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying where did this man get these things and in the original language this man is a put down it would sort of be a little bit like uh, if you're at the university of ottawa or Carleton university and um, you're, you're having a, a guest speaker at a prestigious thing and rather than saying, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, uh, Bob, uh, you know, Professor Bob, uh, he teaches at Stanford, he has a PhD from Yale, another one from, from Oxford, uh, he's put all these publications, you know, blah, 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 blah. that would be the normal way you would introduce him. But if instead, uh, Matthias uh, uh, got up to introduce him and said, this guy is gonna speak, you would all know it was a put down. This guy, <laughs> this guy. <laughs> Who's this guy? <laughs> He's even going to try to speak. <laughs> Why should we listen to this guy? And and that's that's what's going on here in the text. It's very clearly a type of a put-down. And, and in fact, actually, if you then con- continue on as well, and this would be a... And, and all of these put-downs, by the way, are public to people who know Jesus. So it's not just... So, so let's say, you know, here in this congregation, uh, Ben and Frankie and, and all have arranged some other speaker uh, and, and and the speaker comes and, and first of all, uh, Matthias introduces him as this guy, you know, rather than some of the things he's accomplished. And then and then when Matthias says sort of this guy with the, the appropriate head moved to the side and eyes up and everybody, all of you folks in the congregation do this at the same time, two big thumbs up and a big smile, like you agree with the put down and um so if you look continue on in verse you know here they say, like where did this guy get these things what is the wisdom given to him how are such mighty works done by his hands sort of interesting that they acknowledge that he's wise and he does miracles but the wisdom and the miracles don't change their heart the wisdom and the miracles harden their heart rather than soften it deepen their displeasure and put down, rather than make them wonder if they're correct. And then it says, how were such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother and brother of blah, blah, you know, James, etc. Now, the word carpenter here, it's, now one of the things you have to re- realize is that the original ancient biography of Mark uh, was written in uh, Greek. So it's not primarily written for Jewish audiences, it's written for uh, the pagan Gentile world as well. So in, in the Jewish context, being a carpenter is a, like a lower working class uh, profession, but it's an honorable one. It's not a put down for a Jewish person to say that. But Nazareth is only six kilometers away from a very major Gentile section, and this is written in in, in Greek for pagans, and in the pagan world, you know, once again, it would be like if you're at the University of Ottawa, and and you get up and say, we're now gonna have the janitor speak. Not the guy with two PhDs, or the gal with two PhDs, but the janitor. And the whole whole room would go, like, janitor. Like, that's not a very noble occupation from their point of view, just as it wouldn't be a noble occupation from the eyes of those who would teach at the academy like the University of Ottawa or Carleton. And then there's even another put down here when they call him the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph, which is the normal way that a man would have been introduced or spoken of in terms of his father, but he's introduced in terms of his mother, which is a put down. And in fact, actually scholars say that there's actually a hint there that they're putting another put down in here, questioning the legitimacy of Jesus's birth. They don't say the son of Joseph because they're really saying, Well, he's the son of Mary, we know that because, good grief, we don't actually know who his dad is. Now, in our culture, an illegitimate birth isn't a put-down. There's very, very many people that you know, maybe some of you here, who've had a child and you're not married. But in ancient of days, when I was in high school, 100 million years ago, uh, there would occasionally be a girl who, uh, somewhere during the term, she would just stop coming to high school. And then she'd come back a year later. And the reason was that she'd gotten pregnant. It would sort of go through the the gossip of the school and she'd gotten pregnant and it was a shameful thing. Right here in Ottawa, not that many decades ago. So the, the girl would go to another city often to have the baby and then the baby would be given up for adoption and she would return as if nothing had happened. So in this Jewish culture, at the time it was far closer to then than it is now in Ottawa, but it's a a shameful thing and it's all done in public with the approval of the public. Now one of the things to understand when you read the Bible is that the Bible is in some ways a window and in some ways a mirror. It's a mirror in the sense that if you read it with an open heart, It reveals who you are. It reveals the the true state of your soul and what really goes on in your your mind. And it's also a window because it opens a window to the real world. Because in the real world, the triune God exists. In the real world, he has created all things. In the real world, he sustains all things. In the real world, he is sovereign. In the real world, Jesus is Lord. In the real world, he is going to come again. In the real world, there will be a judging of the living and the dead. That is the real world. And so the gospel texts are both a window into the real world, especially God, and who you are in connection with the the, the true and living God. It's also a mirror that helps you to understand and see yourself. So you need to pause here and ask yourself if this had happened to you, if you had been publicly shamed and offended, and not only had you been publicly shamed and offended, but the people thought that the shaming, the offending was good. There'd be high fives for the people doing the shaming. How would you react? In fact, actually, if you think about it for a second, what's being described here is a common theme. If you go on Netflix or Amazon Prime, you will effortlessly come across movies of people who've been shamed and misunderstood by their families. So it's a constant theme in Hollywood. Well, how, does, how would you react if, if it was me, and I'm probably not as holy as most of you, maybe all of you, I would probably go between deep embarrassment, self-doubt, and murderous revenge fantasies. But I'd want to slink away. Of course, in Hollywood, it might be in the horror movie, it is not just a murderous fantasy, but all those shameful people die. Or it might be, if it's another type of movie, maybe you can be, for our LGBTQ+ plus friends or the artistic community, some great triumph and everybody now starts to worship them and confess their wrongdoing to them. And that's how it works in Hollywood. In real life, of course, as we know, many of us struggle with these words of rejection and offense, sometimes for decades. Well, let's see what Jesus does. Look at verse four. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his own household. So, first of all, what he's gonna do about he's gonna do sort of I'm gonna point out three different things that Jesus does in response to this profound rejection and shaming that happens to him. from his family and his community. The first thing is he just names it, he points it out, and he uses a a saying which is common in the pagan and the Jewish world. Uh, But it's interesting that when he says this, look at it again, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He does it without pity, self-pity, or attack. He speaks the truth. He knows that he's a prophet and more than a prophet, and he's been treated without honor, he, he speaks the truth, but not in a way that he just speaks the truth. It's very simple. This is going to be very important because, of course, one of the things that we need to continually grasp as Christians is increasingly important is that Christians have to understand ourselves to striving every day to be people of the truth and not people of the lie. We increasingly live in a world that worships the lie. Who thinks that if the lie is spoken with confidence, it becomes the truth. It's their truth. And we as Christians are called regularly in the scriptures to learn to be the people of the truth. Just the truth. Now, the next thing that Jesus does is uh, something that we miss because we get caught up with a secondary question. Look what happens in verse 5. And Jesus could do no mighty work there. That means a miracle that he couldn't heal or deliver. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, we, um, in 2022, when we read something like that, we sort of immediately go to the question, how come he couldn't heal people? But what we're missing is this. Remember, he's been shamed publicly. And he's been humiliated publicly. But he still tries to heal. That's the big thing. I mean, just, you know, I mean, the, the Bible know, we know from, from now that Jesus knows the secrets of the heart. He could have started a couple at public square and said, You say these things about me? I happen to know this is what you did, you did, you did. You said that about me? You know what, everybody, this is what he did. You did this to me? I can tell you what she did. I can tell you what she's thinking. He could have done all of those things. Or he could have just, in in a rage, just stormed away. But after being publicly humiliated, he still seeks to heal and deliver. That's the big thing which is in this text. He still seeks to heal. I would have murderous revenge fantasies. And I would want to say, let them all stay sick and demon-possessed. He still seeks to heal. You see, the world can't stop Jesus from being Jesus. The world can stop Christians from being Christians but the world can't stop Jesus from being Jesus. That's one of the reasons we can have such a profound confidence that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. In fact, I, I would say if you're here as a bit of a seeker or a skeptic or if you're watching as a seeker and a skeptic and you try to understand in a world that, that being a Christian w- will not help you, in fact, will hurt you, why on earth would you be a Christian? Well, one of the reasons is the world can't stop Jesus from being Jesus. And Jesus heals and delivers and speaks the truth and reconciles us to God and nothing can stop Jesus from being Jesus Why could no people be healed because the attitude and the habits and the actions of the community and in some ways what you see here is a foretaste of hell I'd rather be demon-possessed than come to that guy and be delivered. I'd rather be sick than go to that guy and be healed. I'd rather believe lies than go to that guy and hear the truth. That's why very few were healed. Two weeks ago, so, you know, in in my church at uh, Church of the Messiah, where I serve, we're going through the the Abraham story, and I'm I'm not very good at thinking through all of the things. was like, anyway, it's only as like two weeks out that I realized that I'm going to preach on Sodom and Gomorrah during Pride Month. Um and then people wonder why I don't have a mega church. No, <laughs> it's very obvious. That's not what you do. <laughs> if you want to have a megachurch, just preach on Sodom and Gomorrah during Pride Month. Uh, anyway, one of the things which I addressed there was whether or not same-sex sexual attraction uh, or at same-sex sexual knowing... Uh, is, is the worst sin, which is one of the, the sort of the, the, the ways that often people think and, and talk. The Christians believe it's the worst sin. This text is actually one of the many texts which show that that's not the case. That's one of the things I, ta- I talked about last week. It's, it's, still, a, it's still a sin, but it did, did, in fact, far from, far from the worst. L- look what happens in 6a. And he marveled. Remember, these are people who not not only have they shamed him, but they've said, I'd rather be demon-possessed than go to this guy to be healed, delivered. I'd rather be sick than go to this guy to be healed. And Jesus marvels. He is amazed. He's astonished, but not in a good way, at their unbelief. At their unbelief. He's gobsmacked by their unbelief. You know, the the worst sin, the sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the sin of pride. It's the sin that there is a way of becoming as a human being that you would rather be sick than go to that guy and be healed, that you would rather be afflicted and oppressed by demons than go to that guy to be delivered, that you would rather have the lies that comfort you and know the truth and be free. There is a way of descending into the darkness and the loss of the intellect and the will and the heart that is impenetrable and it astonishes Jesus. Just a couple of things before we go to the third thing that Jesus does is that Christian, if Jesus was rejected, misunderstood and shamed, so will you be. when you are rejected and shamed think of Jesus in the gospel speak the truth preach the gospel heal the sick deliver from demons anyway be like Jesus now the third thing that Jesus does is actually something that shows the profound difference between the gospel and Islam and Buddhism and the wisdom of Canada The third thing that Jesus does in response to rejection is something which shows the profound difference between the gospel and Islam, the gospel and Buddhism, and the gospel and the wisdom of the world. Uh, It's in fact, actually, when you start to realize what is the third thing that Jesus does, and you can already see the two of them, that the previous two things about speaking the truth and about still continuing desire to heal, it's, it's as, as you grasp these things that you start to see the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. The deep emotional beauty of the gospel as the gospel becomes real to your heart and the wonder of the gospel as it becomes real to your heart. It's why people stay Christians. It's also as this, the wonder becomes apparent to people. It's why people, despite the fact that it might make you more unpopular, you still become a Christian. So, what is it? Look at, six, look at 6b. And Jesus went out among the villages teaching. And then, verse 7, he called the twelve, the disciples, the apostles, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. It's another way of referring to demons. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics uh, just aside a tunic is a be sort of like a t-shirt I guess we'd call it now it'd be something you wear right close to your body but it would sort of go down a little bit past your knees and it would be a the garment that you wear closest uh, closest to your closest to your body now first of all it, it, uh, just a very small thing here and this is the the way that the I I said once in a sermon that if I wanted to preach on the Trinity I could do it almost every single week when I preach in the New Testament and most weeks in the Old Testament because the Trinity is part of the deep structure. The Trinity is part of the deep structure of the Bible. And you'll notice here that Jesus gives authority to cast out demons and only God can do that. It's part of the way that the stories in the Gospel help to form us to understand and appreciate the more abstract doctrines that are given. When you, the story is, one moment, Jesus gives authority to cast out demons? Who can do that? Well, that's just a small thing to bring to your attention, how the the stories help to reinforce what's going on uh, when you come to more doctrinal statements later on. But but notice here what Jesus sends them out to do again, right? He sends them out. We're gonna talk about what they're to do when they get out, but he tells them to take nothing with them. And so the first thing in terms of our Muslim friends, is that Muhammad was a warrior. He would tell them to take a sword. If you're familiar with the Hadiths, as believed by our Muslim friends, when you have very little power, of course, you behave one way. When you have almost some power in your culture, you believe it you behave another way. But when you have real power, you use the sword. In fact, it would be more likely to say you go back to that community with your sword and you deal with those people who have rejected our Savior. Muhammad would tell you to take a sword. Jesus tells you to take a staff. Muhammad dies after a woman whose family he had killed is poisoned by that woman. Jesus willingly dies on a cross for you and me and for the people who offend him. And in fact, if you go beyond the Gospel of Mark to the end of Mark to the other things, you actually understand that many of the people who offended and rejected Jesus become Christians. Two of the people who mock Jesus Two of his half-brothers become authors of Scripture. He dies for those who mock him. For Buddhism and the wisdom of the world, this is familiar territory. Jesus is now talking in familiar terms. Christians are to become like holy men or holy women. They're to live ascetic lives, to have very few possessions, depend upon begging, to have uh, an emaciated type of a body. It's a true sign of of holiness. The world denying devotee to the God. And in terms of the wisdom of the world, uh, this sounds like unplug, simplify, your house, you know, get, get a small house, simplify your possessions, you know, get rid of most things, read, uh, you know, listen to Marie Kondo and all those people, and you, you get fewer things, and it sounds like a very familiar type of advice, but Jesus is going to take them in a very, very different way. Jesus isn't talking in terms of the wisdom of the world, and he's not talking like a Buddhist or Hindu holy man, and he's not talking like Muhammad. Look what happens in verse 10. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now now just sort of pause before I read the next two things. One of the things which you need to constantly understand about the gospels is that when Jesus, so what Jesus is doing here, this isn't something, the, the Bible, when the Bible talks about sin, it confronts us with our sin to connect with us, not to push us away. And so even this symbolic action is a symbolic action to hopefully have people have a change of heart to connect. You see, because, you know, there was some very, very observant Jewish people who, in those days, who would say that when you're in a pagan town and when you're leaving the pagan town, you shake off the dust of your feet. And so now Jesus is sending his, his, his disciples out to, to preach the gospel, to bear witness to the truth, to, to heal the sick, and to deliver from demons. And if absolutely everybody, in the, if no, virtually nobody in the community wants them, when they're to leave that community, even a Jewish community, they're to shake the dust off their feet. And, and this sounds like a judgment text. On one hand, it is something, it is warning them about judgment. But this symbolic act, that it's done in a hope that people would go, one moment whoa, 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 don't, don't go away. Why did you do that? Like, come back here a sec. Like, why did you do that? The sin is brought out not to push you away, but to hope, because God desires to connect with you. Three different times in the book of Ezekiel, there's this beautiful line. It's, it's reflected in the uh, Anglican book, of, the old Anglican book of common prayer, morning and evening prayer service. God takes no delight in the death of a sinner, but rather that he will turn from his wickedness and live. That's the heart of our Father. That's the heart of Jesus. Just finish reading verse 12 and 13. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Uh, in other words, they're to proclaim who Jesus is. Um, you know, uh, if you look back at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, where it gives you sort of the summary uh, that... Uh, that Jesus has come, he's come from God, the kingdom of God is at hand, they're to repent and believe the gospel, and as as the by the end of the gospel of Mark, you're going to know more fully what that actually means, but right here, right now, they're just talking that God has come, he's doing something in the person of Jesus, and uh, and, and and God is doing what only God can do, and they're there to proclaim that. Uh, so, so they went out, verse 12 again, and proclaimed that people should repent, because you have to turn from w- the wisdom of the world, to, to the gospel and Jesus and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them So you have a bearing witness to the truth, uh, which means you have to repent of lies and, and idols and false beliefs um, and, uh, and, and, and and you're to, to come to Jesus and And so how do we see once again the differences between Islam? Let's say in Christianity the profound reflection here. It's not by the sword And it's not by social control, but it is by the free preaching of the gospel and the free offering of healing and the free offering of deliverance. And the preaching and healing and deliverance all ultimately point to Jesus and no other. And how is this different than Buddhism and Hinduism? Jesus is not teaching non-attachment or detachment. He's not teaching mindfulness. He's not teaching to see the world as, in fact, not being real, that our true destiny is to merge with the One, to lose our earthly attachments. He literally tells them to heal and deliver so they can live in the world free and whole in Him. And and it's not the wisdom of the world where it's just a lifetime, a season because you're overwhelmed with all the pressures of the world and you need to just spend some time simplifying, 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 eat, pray, love. It's especially something which is true for the well-off for the childless, that you can just maybe go travel and, and get simple and have good experiences and, 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 and eat, pray, love. This is a very, very different type of a call. It's, it's a call... You see here, in a sense, the theological basis for generosity to your church. That Jesus has called us on a mission, and he's asking us to trust that if we do what he asks us to do, he will provide. And not all Christians are called to do all of these things, but all of us are called to understand that he will provide for our needs. You might give 10% of your income. Not to show your detachment from the world. But in honor of Christ and trusting his word. That if we give away money for the sake of the gospel. The furtherance of his kingdom. And the relief of need. That he will still provide for your needs. He will still provide for your needs. One of the things that you often see in movies, sort of as we draw this to a close, I've, I've gone past my time limit, I ask your, your forgiveness for that. One of the things you often see in modern movies and stories and 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 TV-type things. I'm not speaking so much of television as if you watch something on Netflix or Amazon Prime or one of those other streaming things, is they know that you need to have tension in it. So you'll you'll see something in the first episode or the second episode, and it, there's some revelation or there's something that happens and it creates tension, and it, it keeps you wanting to watch. But then they just leave them all hanging there. It, it's like in the like in some movies they sort of you know, you almost feel as if in some movies they say oh, it's 15 minutes. It's time for a fight or it's 10 minutes, it's time for a woman in a bikini. It's, you know, 15 minutes, we need a car chase. And they just sort of randomly put it in there, whether it's needed and for or not in the plot. And, and uh, but, but a lot of times they'll bring other, like I was watching this one thing and there's this, you know, secretive person or this secretive thing about their past and that creates all this tension. But by the end of the movie, they don't do any, they don't do, do it looks as if what they think they should do is just add in these tension moments and hope that the viewer is so stupid and so inattentive that they don't notice. That's not how the gospel is. Everything in the gospel is building towards the great conclusion of the death of Jesus upon the cross. The rejection of Jesus by his home people, is his, his community is foreshadowing and preparing us for the fact that he will be rejected by the nation. And the fact that Jesus' ministry is, is connected to the witness to the truth, to deliverance from demons, and to to physical healing is pointing to the fact that at the end of the day, when Jesus dies upon the cross, that Jesus' death upon the cross is God's great provision. And we are to understand that salvation is the deep healing that we truly need that will go on into all eternity. And that the cross is the great deliverance from demonic powers that we all need that will go on into all eternity. And that the cross is the profound revelation of God, the truth of God's love and care and, and, and justice and mercy that will go on for all eternity. That all of these things are helping us to understand the wonder and the beauty of the cross. That to, to, to come to Jesus, to be gripped by the gospel, to know him as Savior and Lord, is to embark on a journey, given that the ultimate thing is all done there on the cross, all these smaller things are also there, that, that given that the ultimate thing is one for Christ, is, the, is this deep eternal healing and fitting us for heaven and reconciliation to God, so therefore we should be concerned with the lesser healings of the sick and of the things which are going around us and the lesser deliverances. And in a sense, the lesser truth, all truth. Because ultimately, when you see the cross at the end, it's capturing all of the streams, all of the intuitions, all of the images of the entire gospel are helping us to understand what happens when Jesus dies on the cross and rises three days later. Jesus calls ordinary people like you and me to be his. He dies for the unworthy, the mockers, the dismissers. i just, just add to just ask you to stand sort of in closing. I'm going to say a prayer. One of the things you see in this text, by the way, um, if you want to be a devout Muslim, you need to learn 7th century Arabic. If you want to be a devout Buddhist or Hindu, you need to adopt a lot of cultural practices connected to it. In other words, you have to go to those religions. The Christian faith is a go-to faith. It's a go-to faith. It's why you guys are going to Gatineau, and I know it's the heart of your church that after you plant a church in Gatineau, you'll plant another church. I can just share, I'm, I'm hoping to help plant a church in Seoul, South Korea. Maybe some of you could pray for that. We're trying to plant a church in Canada. we're trying to get back on the university faith. I'm not saying that to boast about us, it's not boasting at all. All things come of him and of his own have we given him. But the heart of the Christian faith is to go, it's to go. That's why the Bible's got translated. The Bible being translated isn't like a mistake, it's a design feature the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus wants every people group on the planet to know Jesus, and that means you need to translate the Gospel and the Scriptures into the heart language of every people group in the planet. We are to go. And we are to go because He is the Savior of the whole world. And He is the Lord of the whole world and every single human being needs him you need him i need him let's bow our heads in prayer father if there are any here or watching or who watch downstream that have not yet given their lives to christ we ask father that the holy spirit will continue to move in their hearts and minds and and bring them to a saving faith in jesus and if if they are here watching father and they never have given their life to Christ, then Father, uh, may this be the moment where they stop listening to me and speak directly to you and say, Jesus, I am not worthy, and I am not a very good person, uh, but you are worthy, and you are love, and you will reconcile me to the Father, and you will bring me that deep healing that goes on into all eternity and deliverance. And I ask that you would take me so that I might be in you, that you might come into me and be in me and be in me as my Savior and my Lord. And, Father, for those of us who are here who are already Christians, we recommit to you. We recommit, Father, to be so... We ask that you would make the gospel so real to our hearts that, Father, we learn from Jesus to be people of the truth and not people of the lie, to be people who seek to bring healing, not destruction, to people who seek to bring deliverance, not oppression, to people who are aware of the fact that there is a spiritual world and not to be people who deny it, to reject, to be people who reject all forms of the demonic, that might be us, that we would be people of justice, that we would be people of mercy and compassion. Please grip us with the gospel that we might become more like Jesus and that you would give us a heart to pray for those who do not yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord, that they will come to a saving faith in him. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.